So last week, I uh, started just a two-week series on that I'm entitling Not Alone, having to do with the relationship between men and women, and I'm continuing that this morning. I have basically what I'm doing is I'm piling all of the gender-related landmines into one pile, and I'm dancing on them with a carefree attitude, all right? Uh, it's been a lot of fun for me, but I hope it's, last week was encouraging to you. Um, so let me summarize that, because if you missed that, you missed a lot. Um, and you, you missed what most people miss when they talk about the scriptures I'm going to go into this morning, okay? These are the difficult texts that in the, in the New Testament um, that Paul has given us by the Holy Spirit, and, and they're difficult. And one of the reasons they're difficult is that we forget all the Genesis stuff. And we just tend to dive right in and forget the Old Testament exists, and we jump into these scriptures, and, and it creates a lot of problems. And so if you missed that last week, let me just quickly summarize. I do want to encourage you to go back and listen to that or watch it, um, last week's messages, but, which is basically that, that God created male and female to, to be like to correspond to each other, that the woman is, is facing the man in that text. It's a poetic word, a poetic description of the relationship, that they are equal but different. And we get into real problems when we either uh, diminish the equality or diminish the difference. And the thing in our age right now is to flatten the differences between men and women to the point where they no longer exist and they're immaterial. And my point last week is we actually lose the beauty of God's image in humanity when we do that. And it's, it's not beautiful. As the world describes, it is actually a horror. It's doing, it dehumanizes us in a way that breaks us into something that is, is a curse and not a blessing, okay? Because the way God made us to work together is beautiful and redemptive, right? Um, we looked at how the curse of the fall affected our relationships. It created um, a kind of contemptuous contentiousness and competition between male and female instead of unity. Um, and this morning we're going to see kind of the New Testament prescription for fixing that, okay? That's the background. So restoring this perfect picture is the aim of everything God commands in the New Testament regarding men and women in marriage and in the church. And by the way, I want to emphasize that the picture we saw last week is not just about marriage. It's about how God designed us like on a genetic foundational level. And it's also not a result of sin. So before sin, before marriage, God designed male and female the way he did, okay? Um, that's important. So if you're single, um, you're not, it's not like you're incomplete and, and you, you're only going to be like the way God wants you to be until you get married. We talked about that in 1 Corinthians, but I want to reemphasize that this morning. All right, so I'm going to look at three spheres of life with a text to go with each. There are more scriptures we could fight about, okay, than these. But I'm, these are representative, I think, uh, really well representative of the main arguments and the main issues, all right? So, so don't come up to me after and say, you really should have brought up Titus 1 and Titus 2. I do know those exist. I'm just not going there this morning because it would be repetitive, all right? So we're going to look at marriage. That's going to be Ephesians 5. We're we'll looking at Bible teaching, 1 Timothy 2, and church leadership, 1 Timothy 3. Um, those are all the landmines we will be dancing on this morning, all right? 
So, a couple of notes I want to say. One is, every one of these scriptures is heavily debated by really good people. Not just the liberals. Okay? And I am well aware of all the... Trust me. I am well aware of all the arguments. I'm just not going to present all of them to you this morning. Okay? I, I don't feel like it's my job to be a neutral third party and to present to you all the facts and let you decide. I don't think that's what you want from me, and I don't think it's my job, because not all ideas are equal. All people are equal, but not all ideas are, and I don't want to pretend like I think they are just so we can be democratic. Um, I'm going to tell you what I believe God is saying, okay? And if you want to disagree with me, you are so free to do that, I can't even tell you, you are, I am not nervous about that. I'm not worried about you going, I just think that's not what that says. You are, there are people I love and respect, scholars that have a completely different opinion, and they are free to be as wrong as they are. <laughs> okay? I don't respect them any less. I don't love them any less, um, really and truly. Uh, you can still be wrong, and I'm not going to pretend like I don't think you're wrong either, right? So, that, so just be free. Like, don't get all nervous. There's going to be some words in here that you're not going to like. And we're going to talk about those words, okay? It's going to make everybody nervous, but it's all right. You don't need to be because you can disagree. But that doesn't mean I think everybody's right. Not everybody can be right, okay? All right, so let's start with the first one. We're talking about marriage in this text. This is Ephesians 5. Starting in verse 21, we'll go through verse 33. So, by the way, in context here, it, you can tell I'm starting in the middle of a sentence. Um, he starts off talking about how we should relate to one another as the body of Christ, okay? Um, that's in verse 21, and then we move to marriage. But they're so closely related, we got, I really need to include it, all right? So, verse 21 says, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Okay, so the first question we need to look at is kind of a technical one. It's over the meaning of that word head. And this is, this is where we have the battle of the lexicons. The, the, a lexicon is like a Greek dictionary. And people argue about what that word means. Does it mean... Uh, is it talking about he has authority over, like the head over, like head of household? Or does it mean source, like he's the source of provision for the wife? Which does it mean? And there's lots of um, really interesting arguments, if you like interesting arguments about words and the meanings of words, all right? 
I think, just to give you my shorthand, I think it can be both. But it is never less than authority. Um, I gave you in your notes two examples, and you can read those. I'm not going to read them right now. Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 4. Um, the Ephesians 1 is clearly about authority. You can't make it about anything else. It's clear that G, talking about Jesus as the head of, of the church. He has authority over all things, right? And Ephesians 4 can be seen as source. And depending on which camp you're in, they tend to kind of point to different one or the other, but never both. It's fascinating. Even people who are really scholarly will only mention one or the other. And I see both here. Um, it's never less than authority, but sometimes it has to do with being the source. Christ is your source. He's your source of life. Um, that's not wrong. It's just he also has all authority over all things, right? It's not one or the other. I think it's both. I think it's clear from this teaching that there's an imbalance of authority between husband and wife, and that is the hard part. If Christ is head over the church and husbands are a picture of Christ's relationship with the church, then it's clear that head means he has authority in the home that the wife does not have. It's just what it says. There's just no way around it. Now, the next question is, what does he mean then by submit? I think that's more of the question, honestly. It's what is, what's the nature of the husband's authority, and what's the nature of that word submit? What does it mean, all right? So this leads us to that next issue. So I think we should start here by saying what it does not mean. Then you can all breathe a sigh of relief and then actually approach this openly, Right? So let me help you out, okay? What he's not saying, Paul does not say women to be submitted to men. He says wives be submitted to their own husbands only. So all women are not to be submitted to all men. Whatever submit means, it does not mean all women must be, and that's a common teaching. If you've heard it before, it's wrong. It is not in the Bible. Ladies, you don't have to walk around your life and every time you encounter a man have some special deference to him because he's a man. It's not what he says. It's interesting that even people who don't believe that's in the Bible will teach it like it is. It's frustrating. But he also does not tell wives to obey their husbands as he does children obeying parents. He does not use the word obey like he does in the next section. And so he's not asking women, wives, to be obedient to everything their husband ever says, like a child, whose will just doesn't play into it, whose opinion doesn't play into it. This is a different word. He does not say that women have no authority. This is life. We all know it. We all have varying degrees of authority in varying different spheres of life. When you're at work, you have one level of authority. When you're at home, you have a different one. When, you're, when the police officer pulls you over on the side of the road, your authority changes. It never means you have no authority. It just changes all the time. This is life. And he does not say that women are the only ones that need to submit to someone. It's funny how when men tend to teach this, sometimes they leave that part out. But you have to be submitted to Christ. And we all have to be submitted to someone else. Verse 21 is why I included it. We're to be submitted to one another. There's a kind of submission that we should have to each other 
that is significant, right? And it's not less than the marriage relationship. It happens all over the place. Therefore, submission is not one being micromanaged or childish obedience. Micromanaged being, meaning every little decision you make must be controlled by your husband. It does not mean not making decisions. You get to make decisions, ladies. That's not what this means. It doesn't mean having no authority in the home or marriage. It does not mean having no control over personal pursuits, career, friendships, ministry, etc. And it does not mean having no, no ability to make respectful demands of your husband. Well, I can't ask him to do that. I can't tell him this bothers me or hurts me because I had to be submitted to him. That is not what the Bible teaches. All right. I think the first place we can get help in understanding what submit means is just below the first place we see it in Ephesians 5.33. It repeats the main idea, but instead of using the word submit, it says respect. You see that? Let's go down just a couple of verses. Verse 33. So respect, the word respect there is a different word in Greek than the word submit. It clarifies what Paul means by submit. It helps us understand what he's after. And he says, respect. So what is headship then? I like the best definition I've come up with is, the, is that the husband has the ability to make decisions for the household. Has the ability. Does it mean he has to make every decision for the household? It means he has the ability to do it. A good leader leads by consensus and unity, not by command and control. Guys, if you're finding that you're always having, whatever sphere of life you're in, if you're having to always command people to obey you, including your children, something's wrong in the way you lead. Nor does this mean that decision-making cannot be done by the wife or that all decisions must go through the husband first. That's not what this means. It's that the husband has the ability to make decisions for the household. So then what would submission mean here? I think it simply means supporting that ability to make decisions. Actually thinking it's good. That this is good news from God. This is one of the recent ways in which we are different and that this picture of unity gets played out in everyday life is that I take joy in his ability to make decisions. And he takes joy in receiving my input on those decisions. One of the things that helps me a lot, and I'm going to refer to this a couple of times, in your notes I have a chart. I think it's magically going to appear on the screen. Um, is that we need to understand how authority works in the kingdom of God versus the world. When we misunderstand this and we import the world's ideas about authority into our mindset, I can understand why this would be offensive. So in the world, we have the higher, more authority you have, the farther you are towards the tip of that triangle the more privileges you get. So if I own a company, if I'm the CEO, if I'm the top you know, leader in a company, I get the best office, I get the corner office with the view, I get the best parking space, I get more money, I get more stuff, I have somebody that makes coffee for me, right? I have all these privileges because I have the most authority. And that is how it works everywhere in the world, everywhere you go. It's one of the primary reasons why people want more authority in the world. It's not the money, it's the privileges that come with, the status that comes with being at the top of the triangle. 
And everybody at the bottom of the triangle sort of serves the one at the top. Whoever your boss is, it's a great way to do well in your career is to really make your boss happy, right? Why? Because your boss has more authority than you do. So you make the boss happy, and they make a way for you, and then you make that boss happy all the way up to the top. The problem is, this is not at all how the kingdom of God is supposed to work. In the kingdom of God, the triangle is flipped. Where the more authority you have, the less privileges you have. The arrow goes in a different direction. You are passing the privileges on your way to the bottom as you gain authority. That's how Jesus demonstrated authority. Jesus had all authority. He was at the very tippy-tippy top of the triangle. But what did he do with that authority? He went all the way down to the bottom to the point of death for those being put to death by the people at the bottom of the triangle. He completely reversed it. And this is the picture we get of authority and leadership in the kingdom of God as the whole thing is flipped. Notice that in Ephesians 5, most of the instruction is given to the husband, not to the wife. And it's devastating. Just be honest with you. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I just told you how Christ loved the church. How did Christ love you? He died for you. But while you were his enemies, Christ died for you. That's, so that's what Paul is saying to husbands. Husbands, your job is to willingly and joyfully choose death before your wife. He does not tell this to the wife. He tells this to the husband. Far more, I think that's far more restrictive. I don't think there's anything more restrictive than death. So headship is fighting your way to the bottom of the pile of people that you are responsible for as you push them up towards the top where the blessing is. So dads, husbands, and elders, they go last. This is what I say in my house all the time. Dads go last. We eat last. We get the worst plate of food if we get food at all. We drive the worst car in the family. We have the lumpy side of the bed with the lumpiest pillow. We have the least amount of money, right, right? And that, uh, I don't know if that works out that way in my house, but that's how it should be, right? You don't get the best things, you get the worst things. You get the things that are broken and not working. You get the hand-me-downs. Dads go last. The same thing is true of elders and pastors and husbands. You go last. That's what this means. Is you, and you choose it willingly. It's not because your wife is mad at you and taking things from you and removing privileges from your life because she's mad. All right? It's not a punishment. It's a joyful choice on your part, guys. Get busy dying. That's what he says. And you fight your way to the bottom. My wife fights me all the time. She, like, she prefers to go last. It's, it's a weird thing. Don't understand it. I prefer to go first. Whenever I choose to go last, she fights with me, and I have to trick her into letting me go last. It's a constant fight. Pray for me that I will die before her in every sense of the word. Right? We're the first to sacrifice. We're the first to take the bullet. Submission is respecting your husband on his way down. That's what that means. As I respect your ability to make decisions, 
on your way to the bottom of this family, on your way to die. I'm not being dramatic. This is really, I think, what Paul is saying. What, if, if that's not what Jesus did, what did he do? But come and get to the bottom as fast as he could and die for us. The purpose of this is not to break men. The purpose of this is unity and harmony in the marriage relationship that demonstrates that the curse of the fall has been broken. We talked about that last week. And that we can now have unity with Christ. If marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship with the church, then when you have unity in your marriage, then that is a picture of what Christ has done for the world. He's brought redemption where there was a curse. If you look at verse 31, everything is tied back to God's design and creation for man and woman to fit together. He references what we looked at last week right in the middle there. Talking about how we're one flesh. All right, so let's move on to Bible teaching. Leave marriage for a minute, but it all relates together. They're not really separate the way I've separated them, but if we're going to look at leadership in the church, the other landmine. Because, you know, if you're not married, you get to basically dodge everything I just said. Theoretically. <laughs> but then there's the church, right? And that's the other place where there's contention. So let's look at the, the verse that is kind of at the center of that argument. 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 15. More trigger words ahead. You'll be okay. Verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Okay, let's just go home. Everybody good? No, we're not. Please help. Verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. All right, let me just say right now, I'm completely bailing out on verses 14 and 15. I'm just, I'm just bailing out, okay? I, I have spent so much time trying to understand those verses, and I, I have a very good idea of the options, but I don't like any of them, right? I have, instead of, in lieu of that, and I don't have time, I just don't have time this morning to do it, I've put an appendix in the notes with a summary from the Net Bible, which is a really good summary of the options, the kind of interpretive options. You probably won't be happy with any of them either, um, but it's what we got. It's maybe the hardest scripture in the Bible to understand. Even people who are super, super smart go, I think this, but then when you press them on, they go, yeah, it's just, uh, I got like a 75% confidence on it. I'm like 50%, all right? So I'm just not going to harp on it. I don't think it's essential to the point of the text either, Okay. So let's look at these, look at mainly verses 11 and 12. Look at some of these words. First we have verse 11 where it says quietly or in all quietness and submissiveness, depending on your translation. This does not mean total silence. It can't mean that. It doesn't mean like complete silence. You're not allowed to speak in church, okay? We talked about this some with 1 Corinthians, the similar argument. It was not only women that should be quiet while someone is teaching. 
Think about this just in our own context. Our own context is not that far from a Greek-Roman context, the way we're doing this right now. It would be rude for anybody in this room just to start talking over me right now. Don't try it. It's annoying. Right? You, we all kind of know this, okay? So women weren't the only ones that needed to be quiet. This seems to be a problem specific to the church in Ephesus, which is where Timothy is writing. But there was arguments going on in the service. We know that there was heresy being taught in the church. It was contentious. A lot of people were believing it and teaching it in the church. So this is probably a specific issue he's addressing, okay? That's the first thing you understand. It's not absolute silence. This is also an invitation to learn. Don't miss that in that verse, in that sentence. Let them learn. This would have been radically different than the culture at the time, both Jewish culture and Greek culture, that women would be invited into the space, the teaching space, with the men to learn along with them. It would have been very different. We often miss that here. Is there any other way to learn other than to be quiet and respectful when someone is teaching you? I don't think there is. Verse 12, there are two words to focus on here, teach and exercise authority. This is, this is, at the, this is the sweet spot, the hot spot of the argument. Because the question is, are women allowed to teach in the church and in what context? Right? Exercise authority is one word in Greek. In English, it's two words. You'll figure it out. To assume a stance of independent authority, give orders to, or dictate to. That's the definition of that word. Another lexicon defines it as to control in a domineering manner, to control, to domineer. This is different than what the impression is you probably heard when you first read it. So this is a kind of teaching we believe that is authoritative in a way that would be inappropriate. Not just teaching, it's a kind of teaching. So authority clarifies teaching. Does that make sense? Some people will separate them, right? They'll separate as teaching and authority. Some people put them together as a package. I put them together as a package. That's what, what we believe as a church. Our elders have spent a lot of time on this too. So the next question is, what is the intended relationship in the sense between teach and exercise authority? I don't think they're separate. I just said that. I'm just reading my notes. So the question is, what is Paul prohibiting a woman to do? Obviously, he's prohibiting something. We believe that Paul is prohibiting a specific kind of teaching that would constitute independent authority in the church or domineering, giving of orders regarding the overall doctrinal positions of the church. That's an elder's job. We'll talk about elders in just a second. So it's the kind of teaching that an elder is responsible to do. If you look at the qualifications for an elder in Titus, which we're not going to read this morning, it's extra clear there about an elder's job is to set or establish doctrine and defend it, guard it. That's their primary job. Above everything else, the one thing you've got to get right is that one thing. And we think that what Paul is prohibiting here is that kind of teaching. But there's a lot of different kinds of teaching in the church. John Frame, as well as Andrew Wilson, a theologian in our family of churches, God bless him, hold that there are different kinds of teaching encouraged in the Bible. Frame calls it, I think these are helpful terms, general teaching and special teaching. Special teaching would be what elders are required to do. 
General teaching would be all the other teaching that happens in a church. There's a teaching that the elders are responsible for, and we are very responsible for that, and that's a kind of a narrow category. That's what Paul is concerned about. So under that framework, it's the special teaching that Paul is prohibiting. There's this great, great quote from Bill Mounts, um, a Greek scholar, and he says this, the statement cannot be a blanket prohibition of women teaching anyone. Older women are told to teach what is good, and so train younger women. Timothy has the same faith as did his mother and grandmother. Paul never says they taught Timothy, but it's the apparent meaning of the text. It's really interesting to read that one. Priscilla, along with her husband Aquila, taught Apollos. Believers are to teach each other. The Priscilla and Aquila one is my favorite. Because it says Priscilla, a woman, and Aquila, her husband, taught Apollos, who was already a follower of Christ, but he did not know about the Holy Spirit. And they went and they taught him over time about the Holy Spirit, and then he was sent out. They discipled Apollos. And Apollos is kind of a big deal in the New Testament. He's one of the main teachers. And Paul is applauding them for this. He's not saying it was bad. He was saying, this is a great thing. Look what you did. You've changed the world through your discipleship of Apollos. So I think this makes the most sense of this verse, as well as these others mentioned by Bill Mounts, is to understand that there's different types of teaching in the church, and not all of it is exclusively belonging to men. I'll get more specific about how that works out here in just a minute because we need to talk about church leadership before I run out of time. I'm not going to read all the qualifications for elders and deacons. Um, you can do that on your own. Not all of it is exactly relevant to our discussion this morning. Um, what we do need to say is that um, verses 1 to 7 really don't make room, when it's talking about elders, don't make room for women to be in the role of elder or overseer. Titus 1 is similar where it also heavily emphasizes the requirement for teaching. So that, combined with our understanding of 1 Timothy, is why we don't ordain women as elders here. That's the reason. We do encourage women to be deacons because if you look at, and that's controversial too, it's fun to be on both sides of the controversy, but because deacons, if you look at that where it says wives, you could also translate that as women. So either he's giving qualifications for women deacons or he's giving qualifications for the wives of male deacons and it is not clear which it is. We also have Phoebe as an example who was, is called a deacon in the New Testament. And so we have a woman deacon in the New Testament, doesn't seem to be a problem, and we have a, a, a linguistic open door in those verses and the requirements for deacons that I think are important. I think most of the trouble with this position that we hold about not having women as elders goes back to my chart about a misunderstanding about what an elder is and how authority works in the kingdom of God. Because if you believe that if you're an elder, you get to do all the cool stuff, that the more authority you have, the more ministry you get to do, that the more, if you have a title, that means you get to do the best ministry and have the biggest impact on the church and on the world, if you think that the people on the stage are the ones that do the stuff and the rest of us support them, then as soon as somebody says, well, we don't, women can't be elders, then you're going, well, that's not fair. That means I don't get to do the cool stuff. 
That means my impact and my meaningfulness in the world, my value is diminished. However, if you flip the triangle upside down and you understand, okay, if I'm the senior pastor at this church, I have the most authority in the church. That means I am the farthest down on the priority list. That I actually, and if I live like that's true, if I act like that's true, then no one's being excluded from doing the cool stuff. You're actually honored that you don't have to be an elder <laughs> because it's at the bottom. And you're blessed that someone else is pushing you up the blessing ladder to get more blessing and more privileges in your life. That's how it should be. I think the celebrity pastor thing has exacerbated the problem here. Where you elevate, we, we feel like, well, that guy gets all the claps and the applause, the guy on the stage. And I'm just here to support his vision. It's devastating on all sorts of levels, and this is just another one. So let me give you a practical summary. I'm trying to anticipate the questions you might have about how this works out, because in every church it's a little different. Um, every church tradition, it's a little different. Even if they agree with me on the, this is what gets confusing, even if they agree with us on our position on the scriptures, if the, the, if the written down theology is the same, it works out quite differently sometimes in practice. Um, there's lots of reasons for that I'm not going to go into, but here at Living Hope, we encourage women to be deacons. I already mentioned that because of verse 11 and also Phoebe. Secondly, we do not believe that all women must be submitted to all women. We already said that. In other words, like your, ladies, your, any kind of submission you would have towards me or the elders is not because we're men. It's because we're the elders of the church. That's it. It's not because I have some special gene that makes me more respectable than anyone else. It's because I'm an elder in the church. Everyone, male or female, is biblically required to be submitted to their leaders. That's Hebrews 13. Um, thirdly, all ministry leadership in LHC is open to women except for the office of elder. This is an interesting one because as the church grows, we may have staff positions that open up. And that creates kind of an odd category. Is a staff person an elder? And we would have to decide, like if it's an associate pastor, that associate pastor would need to be an elder. I'm hoping we can hire an associate pastor soon. I don't know how soon soon is, so don't, you know. I mean, I'd like it to be tomorrow, but I don't think tomorrow's going to work out. <laughs> Ministry leadership should not be exclusively male, to put it a different way. It should not be. Going back to Genesis 2, it's not good that man be alone. That's not in any respect. And leadership needs to come not just from men, but also from women. Women are encouraged to use their teaching gifts everywhere in LHC so long as that teaching is done in unity, relationally and doctrinally, with the elder team. This much is true of everyone, male or female. But that gets tricky too. This also should be done in a way that leaves no confusion about whether it's special or general teaching. So what that practically looks like here, I have a list, some examples might help you. Women doing teaching in a small group, yes. 
Absolutely, please do. Women teaching Sunday school as well as youth group. Yes, we do that right now. Women giving exhortations from the Bible during Sunday worship service. Yes, that happens. It didn't happen this morning, but it happens all the time. Women teaching, women team teaching during the sermon time, which is right now, during the Sunday worship service. Yes, Heather and I have done that many times. Women solo teaching during the sermon time on Sunday. Ah, well, that depends. Probably some discussion is going to be needed there, uh, just to make, make that clear. I'm not going to say never, never, ever. Um, but again, it's about the clarity about is this an elder teaching or is this not an elder teaching. Women teaching in a seminar, adult classes, seminary, Bible school, etc. Yes, please. Go get your seminary degree and, and teach. Be, you know, do it. Please do. Frequency is also a consideration when it comes to pulpit ministry because we do, whether it's male or female, like how often someone other than the elders are teaching here on Sunday is a consideration I think about a lot. That includes guest speakers. Um, we don't want a guest speaker here every Sunday. Uh, we think like the elders is why when I'm gone a lot I just ask an elder to teach. I don't always get an outside teacher because I think they carry a responsibility that no one else does. When Carl Harrington comes in here, he does not carry the same responsibility for the doctrine of the church as me and the elders do. Right? We want the bulk of our Sunday teaching to come from elders. All right. So, I think I'm doing pretty great on time. I'm impressed with myself. So let me just say in con- a couple of concluding thoughts. One is, if this feels like bad news to you, I don't know if it does. I can't tell by your faces. I don't feel like it is bad news. I think it's actually really good news, and I think it's in accordance with the Genesis 2 picture we see of how men and women work together and how we fit together. Um, But one, I could be wrong. Me and our entire elder team could be wrong, and that's certainly a possibility. And you are free, like I said, to be like, you're so wrong. You should be more, you know, restrictive, or you should be less restrictive. There's a whole, you know, range of opinions about that, and that's okay. But I also want to suggest that it's possible you just need to wrestle with God over some of this and get more clarity about what he's actually calling you to do. I want you to know that you don't make, ladies, you don't make me nervous. As I've studied this just and, and read like everybody's, the chorus of opinions, I have noticed a trend. And it's a trend of nervous pastors who are worried either about the, the, the horrible influences of radical feminism or the horrible influences of misogyny in the church. And both are real concerns. There's real misogyny in the church right now in a lot of different pockets of the church. It's not just a thing that used to be a problem. It is still a problem, and I see it on a regular basis. But I'm not nervous. You don't make me nervous. You are free to be strong, bold, outspoken women who follow Jesus with their whole hearts. You are free, and you don't scare me. You don't make me nervous. You don't have to look at me and wonder, like, what's he going to think? Is Am I being too assertive? Am I being too bold, too loud, too soft, whatever it is? You don't make me nervous. 
if you make a mess, it's okay. It's my job to clean it up. Fine. We need to get rid of this nervousness because there's freedom here and there's beauty in this picture, I believe. Okay? All right. I hope that's clear. Let's stand up and pray and we'll worship together. If anything's confusing, Alan Austin, who was in Sunday school this morning, said you can email him anytime. Uh, you can drop by the house unannounced. They are super hospitable. Drop by anytime. Just come right on in. No need to knock. He said it would be fine. Any time of day, right? You're welcome, Alan. All right, let's pray. God, I just ask you to help us as Christians to think like Christians. God, that we would be primarily focused on what do you say, what does your word say. And God, wherever there's debate, I pray that the debate would be over the word. Wherever there's discomfort, I pray it would be over your word and not over what the world does and says. God, I pray that you would help us to navigate these things as our culture is getting more and more heated and angry and the accusations come against the church constantly, and some of it is well-founded, and some of it is not. God, help us as your people to be people of grace and peace and mercy. God, I pray for the women in this church who, over the last couple of years, have voiced things to, to me and to my wife and other people, God, that of uncertainty over these issues. God, I pray that you would remove the uncertainty and give them boldness and confidence that their value is enormous and their voice is needed. And God, I pray for the men here that we would all learn to die quicker, to embrace the bottom as a place of joy, a place we were designed for. We were made to live at the bottom. God, is the place where Jesus himself has stood before us. God, I pray that you give us the grace to have joy in that place. God, I pray for every marriage in this room because each one of them is meant to be a picture of the unity between Christ and the church. God, I pray that you would restore every hint of competitiveness. God, help us with that. God, I pray that we would be, not be a picture of the curse that we would be picture of redemption. So God, we ask you to come and bless every marriage here. God, that every voice would be heard. Every person would be valued. God, if there's any place where any of us need to repent, including myself, not doing that well, God, I pray you'd show it to us. Fill us with your life and your presence. In the name of Jesus. Amen.